going through the book of Philippians, we, um, we're going to um, be picking up in verse 12 today, and we're going to get all the way uh, through chapter 1 today. It only took us three weeks to do it. Let me tell you the big idea of where we're at, this section of Scripture. The big idea of our text today is finding joy uh, in the midst of suffering. Joy in the midst of suffering. Uh, and, you know, the whole book of Philippians, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the theme is joy. Um, and and the, the idea of joy, it's different than happiness. You know, happiness is circumstantial. Happiness is dependent upon the, the circumstances in your life going well. Uh, and they don't go well and you're not happy. But joy is different. Joy is not dependent on, on any sort of circumstance whatsoever. Joy is an attitude, and we can go through times of mourning, times of trial, times of difficulty, as well as times of joy, uh, and times of happiness, and times of, of goodness, and we can manifest an attitude of joy. And so, uh, what we're going to focus on today is finding joy in the midst uh, of suffering. And, you know, really, the last two verses of the text that we're going to go through today pretty much sum up the big idea of the message. So we're going to start there. Verse 29, if you'll give attention to it, here's what Paul says. He says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Goody, right? Hey, it's been granted to you. You get to suffer for Christ's sake. Doesn't that make you happy? No, but it's the truth. It has been granted to you to suffer for his sake. Verse 30, having the same conflict which you saw in me, Paul says, and now here is in me. See, here's the thing. Suffering is the key word. Uh, the Bible says that we know God by the fellowship of of his sufferings. In other words, God allows you to go through suffering. He allows you to go through trial. And through that suffering, through that trial, that's your opportunity to better know God. And Jesus told his disciples that suffering, uh, it's an inevitable part of life. Uh, he said this in John's gospel. He said, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And the Bible says that suffering is not just a part of the human experience. The Bible tells us that it's an inextricable part of our faith. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that's not one of those biblical promises that, you know, we make a plaque out of and stick up on our wall. It's not one of those biblical promises that, you know, hey, let's, let's, let's name this and let's claim this or whatever it is. Uh, not that that's right theologically to do anyway. But no, it's not a promise that we often quote, but it is a promise. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. Suffering in general terms, by the way, it's the result of sin entering God's world. Uh, we, we begin, because we're sinners by nature, we begin sinning, we begin causing suffering. Uh, we are agents of suffering even before we come out of the womb. You ask any pregnant lady if their child caused them to suffer, and they will say, yes, they did. Some of you, some of you all know this. I mean, poor Nick, his wife, you know, she, all through her first trimester, you know, just constantly just vomiting over and over and over again. I'm like, why do you have more than one kid? I mean, if guys, 
Seriously, if guys were pregnant, if we had to carry the baby, there, there would be a lot less people in the world. I'll just tell you that. It's like, I ain't going through that again, you know? Every single child, just miserably ill, all through her first trimester, into her second trimester. I'm like, good grief, no wonder you weigh 86 pounds soaking wet, you know? I mean, Wow. And, and so it's just a trial. It's so difficult. It's so hard. Man, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. And because suffering, man, it starts, well, it's constant. We cause it. Other people cause it. The world heaps on. Hey, you want to, you know, let me dish that out to you. You want seconds? Here you go. I mean, suffering is a part of our lot. We go through it, um, you know. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, relationally, you name it, suffering is part of the lot that we're going to go through. And the Bible is so replete with suffering that roughly one-third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Uh, Almost every book of prophecy contains within it at least one lament within the prophecy. I think Haggai is the only prophet who doesn't have any aspect of lamenting in, uh, in his, his prophecies. We even have a whole book in the Bible dedicated uh, to lamenting. It's called Lamentations, you know? And, and so this, this struggling, this wrestling, this lamenting, this suffering, man, it is part and parcel of the human condition. And human suffering, it is so real, it's so raw, it is so replete throughout Scripture that two prominent figures in Scripture, Job and Jeremiah, actually questioned why they were even born. They suffered that much. And some of you can identify with that. Sometimes the suffering is so intense, it is, it is so difficult. Sometimes we just go, God, why, why, did, why was I even born? that I suffer so much, I struggle through so much. Listen, the question is not, will I suffer? Because there is no question that indeed you will. That's not the question. To be human, if you're alive and you've got a pulse and you're breathing, suffering is part of the equation. That's not the question. The question is this, how will I suffer? And that's the question that I ask you to just contemplate and take a walk with today. How Will you suffer? Maybe today, right now, this moment, you're going through an intense time of suffering, an intense time of trial. My question for you is how are you going to go through that suffering? How are you going to go through that trial? Will you suffer in a way that's purposeless so that nothing good comes of it, which is one option that you've got? Because you've only got two two options. That's one. Or the other option is, are you going to suffer in a way that's purposeful that God can do something in that suffering and through that suffering? You know, back in 2007, when we were first planting this church, uh, it was in November. And uh, many of you know Kylo and Andrea. They sing on our worship team. Uh, they, they do worship for our 8 a.m. service. Um, Great service, by the way, 8 a.m. service. If you, you know, as I look around here, we're kind of full. If you want to pick another service, 8 a.m. is a good option for you. Kyle and Andrea, uh, just a little plug there. Um, Kyle and Andrea, they lead worship for our, our 8 a.m. service. In, um, and, uh, you know, he, Kyle was our, if you're new to our church, he was our drummer on Easter. Andrea was one of the female vocalists on Easter. So um, when we were first starting the church, Andrea was pregnant with her first child, Addie, Adeline. And, um, and the pregnancy went well. By all accounts, Addie was healthy. Uh, ten fingers, ten toes, the whole bit. Andrea went into labor. 
She had a, uh, you know, labor seemed normal, seemed to progress normal. Everything progressing well. And in the last minutes of her delivery, something went tragically wrong. And so when Adeline was born, it it became in the last few minutes just a frantic emergency. And she came out pulseless and non-breathing. And that began a 15-hour ordeal of intense medical intervention and an air ambulance and a transferring to, to you know, the, the children's hospital in San Diego. And, and it, was, it, was, it was absolutely horrible experience, something you, you, your worst nightmare times a thousand. And, uh, and ultimately, Addie died. She was born at 4 o'clock in the morning, and at 9 o'clock that night, they took her off life support. She went home to be with the Lord. And um, it was brutal, absolutely devastating. But here's what happened. We watched with amazement as through that suffering and through that trial, God did a work in Kylo and Andrea that just left you speechless and in absolute tears because here they were, just these two young kids with their first baby. And in all likelihood, medical malpractice and wronged and oh my God, and how, and they walked through that with this incredible faith that just made you, well, I actually said to Kylo at one point, I'm like, man, when I grow up, I want to be half the man of faith that you are. And I meant that then and I mean it now. I would listen to this woman's prayers, this mom. And she would pray in such an intimate way that half of me felt like I shouldn't be hearing this. And the other half of me said, don't you dare take me away. I want to hear every single word. Because she was so connected so clinging to, so honoring the Lord through it. Words can't describe the level of faith and the level of just faithfulness that God worked in and through Kylo and Andrea. And they ended up ministering to so many people. And Addie's death ended up being that catalyst that God did such amazing things through. It was absolutely astounding. Well, this last Monday... um, Kyle and Andrea had a situation come up where they they had to they had to to go to the hospital. Um, their uh, their now uh, eight month old daughter uh, Avril had some medical issues and she had to get tests, and um, and so they had to go back to Children's Hospital for these tests. Kyle was scheduled to work. He was he was worried about Andrea. He said, "Should I take the time off of work? I don't know. You know, how's it going to be for you?" And and she said, "You know." Kyle, it was four and a half years ago. And that, whole, that whole night is a blur to me. And so she said, I, I think I'm going to be all right. I don't even remember the hospital. I don't even remember anything. I don't think it's going to really trigger any memories. And so she went for the testing. And by the way, the testing went, went fine, and, and, and Avril's going to be fine. We thank Jesus for that. But So she writes, and I'm not going to read you. She wrote a blog for our, for our women's page, and this is what I'm going to read to you. I won't read the whole thing because, frankly, I can't get through it. Um, but I'm going I'm to paraphrase large parts, but I want to read to you some, some particular things here. She writes how she kept it together. She got there. 
felt no emotions, no feelings. And as she's walking in, she sees this lonely little bench. And it triggered a bunch of emotions and a bunch of memories. And she stuffed them all down. No, I got I to gotta concentrate on Avril. So she went in. She went through all the testing. As she's coming back out, she has to pass the bench. She's preparing her heart for passing that bench. And as she encounters this bench, this is the bench that when she was leaving the hospital after 15 hours of hell, she sat alone on this bench waiting for the car to come up. Imagine. She's just been through the, the long, many hours of labor. She's been through 15 hours of, of sheer terror with, with her daughter. And now she's waiting on a bench for the car to come, pick her up, and take her away. And she's going home without her baby in her arms. She came in that car with her baby in her belly. And she's leaving alone. You can only imagine. Here's what she writes. She writes... As I walk by, and by the way, she writes this in, in the present tense because she, she wrote this, this blog that she stuck in the ladies' blog on our, on our Facebook page um, that day. She says, as I walk by and stare, tightly gripping Avril, I begin weeping. That bench, that bench. How can a bench bring up so many memories and emotions? She just describes those emotions and all the thoughts and all the feelings and all the things that are going on. And she says, as I sat there after all of these years, now talking in the present tense, I closed my eyes, head in hands. I could feel every emotion that I felt sitting on that bench four and a half years ago. And then she writes something totally unexpected. She said, I've cried off and on the rest of this day, today, Monday, and it has felt so great. This nearness, this closeness, this comforting, undeniably loved feeling that the Lord has blanketed over me. How I've missed these moments with him, she writes. Though they are painful, they draw me close into his arms. They cause me to feel and to hear his heartbeat. Such a sweet place. She shares from Psalms 143 and Lamentations 3. She says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all your works. I muse on the work of your hands. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Andrea continues, I'm reminded of how many times through this last year, while studying the life of Moses, the Lord told the Israelites, remember. Remember the things which I have delivered from you, or delivered you from. Remember the sufferings I've seen you through. Remember the graces and the mercies which I bestowed upon you. Remember. She continues, we can get so caught up in life that we fail to remember what he has done. The moments he draws us near, the closeness, the intimacy shared with him, may we always remember, though it may be painful and could cause us to stop dead in our tracks, to be unproductive for a moment, we must remember. She concludes, that bench literally served as a benchmark in my life today. 
that bench made me stop dead in my tracks and evaluate my life and how, for the, and, and, and how far the Lord has brought me. It served as a reference point of terrible pain and grief, but astounding, underlying, supernatural joy and a peace and closeness with the Almighty God. And she concludes, I remember. It is an amazing thing to comprehend that I can go through such intense suffering that I think sometimes my heart will break within me. That I don't know if I can catch my next breath in the midst of that suffering. And yet God, through it, can bring us joy. See, again, the question isn't, will you suffer? The question is, how will you suffer? Are you going to allow your suffering to reorient reorient your priorities towards the Lord? Towards God and His purposes? Or are you going to allow suffering to drive you away from Jesus Christ? And I would ask you today, just as we're going to dig deeper into the text, just to, to come into it with an attitude of, how are you suffering today? What are you suffering through today? And, and the question comes, how will you suffer? How will you suffer? How will you go through that? How will you deal with that pain? How will you deal with that trial? How will you deal with that suffering? There's three points of perspective that I want to focus on today. Perspectives for us to keep in mind because it is only a matter of time. You're here today and you say, thank you, Jesus. I'm not going through suffering. I'm not going through trial. Get ready. And we're going to go through three points today on how you can go through suffering. Very practical points in the text that that Paul provides. I pray you write them down. And I pray as you're going through times of suffering, times of trial, that you can call them to remembrance. The first point, again, if you're taking notes, you write it down. God is in control. That's the first perspective to keep in mind when you are faced with suffering, when you're faced with trial, when God takes you through a difficulty that's too great for you to handle, you need to stop and always remember that God is in control. Paul says this, verse 12, Philippians chapter 1, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, what things have happened to Paul? Well, he does us a favor when he's writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, and he gives us a list of the things that have happened to him. He says, to them five times I received 40 lashes minus one. An intense, incredible beating. Five times that happened to me, he says. He tells them three times I was beaten with rods. He tells them one time I was stoned. It's, it's hypothesized, we read it, you know, how, how Paul, he was, he was drug outside the city. They stoned him and they drug him outside the city and they left him for dead. And it's hypothesized that in that place he actually was dead when he writes about being caught up to the third heaven. It actually took place when they stoned him to death and that God resurrected him. I don't know whether or not that's true or not. That's one of the, the running hypotheses. Nevertheless, when they stoned you, they threw rocks at you until you died. Not a pleasant experience. And Paul says, I was, I was stoned. Now, why did these things happen? Because he had the audacity to tell people that Jesus loved them. Here he gives his life in this way, and this is the thanks that he gets. It gets worse. He says, three times I was shipwrecked. 
I spent a night and a day in the deep. He goes on to talk about how he was in danger of waters, dangers of robbers, dangers of vengeful men, both Jews and Gentiles, talking about the dangers that he faced. He talks about how people stabbed him in the back. You know, they cozy up to him and he thinks that they're his partners in ministry and only to turn around, they stab him in the back. He talks about how he, he was in danger in the country. He was in danger in the city. He was in, in danger in the sea. He talks about how he was often hungry and thirsty and fasting, uh, not by choice, and cold and naked. And at the time of his writing here to the Philippians, not only all of these things, this list that we get from the, the, the epistle to the Corinthians, but at the time of this writing, we know he's sitting in a Roman prison facing a death sentence, not in pleasant conditions at all, and a death sentence hanging over his head, and yet he can write, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, all of these things, hey, listen, they've actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. God is in control. He continues in verse 13, he says, so, so that it's, it's been used, you know, verse 12, hey, for the furtherance of the gospel, verse 13, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ and most of the brethren in the Lord, uh, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul says, listen, my chains, man, they've caused an incredible work in both non-believers and in believers alike. What's happened is because of my chains and because the way Paul would say that he had respond to his chains, that non-believers would look on and they'd go, wow, that is the real deal. By the way, if you, if you look over um, in uh, verse 28, he says, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from the Lord. Here's what that means. When, when he talks about being terrified, terrified, that word, it's, it's, it's indicative of a stampeding herd of, of cows or of cattle or of, uh, rather of horses. Um, and and, and it's, this is the, 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 the picture that that word co- uh, connotates. And, and basically he's saying, look, if, if the unbelieving world looks on and sees you get terrified by things, basically they're going to know your faith isn't real. But if an unbelieving world looks on and they see the way you react to trials, hardships, suffering, circumstances, and you have a faith that transcends, that, that, you know, here in the, in the face of this stampeding, you know, herd, uh, you can have such a bold confidence. Man, the unbelieving world looks on and says, his faith is real. That's genuine. And I just ask you the question right now today, whatever you're suffering through, what is the unbelieving world around you? What do they see as they look on? What do they see as, as, as what's transpiring in your life? Can, can they be emboldened by the things that you see? Can they, can they, that they see in you? Can they go, well, I can't believe you're holding it together. How are you holding it together? And you say, well, let me tell you how I'm holding it together. Because I have a God in heaven who loves me, who gave himself for me. And yes, I'm going through suffering, I'm going through hardship, I'm going through trial, but, but I can trust in the Lord through this. And see, Paul was able to, to say, listen, I've gone through these, these trials, but God's using them because as he's in chains, man, an unbelieving world looks on, he's actually physically chained to these Roman guards 
And can you imagine if you were chained to, um, take your next door neighbor, your unbelieving next door neighbor. What if you were chained to them for a week? What kind of faith would they have after spending a week chained to you, you know? For some of us, that's sort of a scary thought. And, and so, you know, and Paul says, man, I, I'm chained. I'm going through these hardships, these trials, these afflictions. God's using it because the unbelievers are going, wow, that's, I'm affected. Not only that, he says the believers, through his chains, they're emboldened. Right now, um, Pastor Brent Yim at Temecula Community Church has cancer, brain cancer. He's, he's deathly ill. If God does not intervene and do a miracle, this young man with two very young children and a lovely wife, if God does not intervene within the next days or, or weeks, it is in all likelihood Brent is gonna, going to die and go home to be with the Lord. Brent has been an incredible example of a man of faith throughout this trial. With this brain cancer, he has blinding headaches, and yet he gets behind the pulpit week after week, proclaiming the gospel, and he says boldly and confidently to, to everyone, I have a young wife, I have young children, I don't want to go, but I'm ready to go. He's chained to a disease that they can't heal. And through this process, yet Brent is able to say, listen, this, this, is, this is my lot, but my life belongs to the Lord. And I can trust in him. Now, this last week, we were going through something, and here's telling about this example I'm going to use. I can't remember, honestly, what it was. <laughs> that puts it in perspective. I was going through something, my wife and I talking, some sort of ministry hardship kind of thing. And, and, and as we're talking about it, in the midst of it, I just, I just stopped. I just said, you know, I'm just thinking about Pastor Brent right now. And, you know, in, in, on, the, on the scale of things, if that man can go through that trial with that boldness and that confidence and that faith, shame on me if I can't face this trial, this thing that I'm going through, with the same measure of faith. And so in a very real example where we have these situations, we have these trials, we have these circumstances, and we have an opportunity, man, just to go, Lord, I trust you. See, because the, 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 the temptation when we go through these things is we, we're tempted to say, God, why am I chained here? You know, why am I chained to this illness? God, why am I chained to this cruddy job? God, why am I chained to this horrible teacher? Why am I chained to this heartbreak? God, why am I chained to these financial circumstances? God, why am I chained to this house? Why am I chained to these kids? You know, whatever it is. Man, I feel chained to these things. And you know what? God, through Paul here, he would say to us, listen, you're not chained there. You're in a situation where I'm bringing people to you. You're in a situation where I'm giving you the opportunity to speak of me and to suffer like me. Listen, you are in a situation where you can demonstrate that, that I, the Lord, make a difference in hurting people. You are a poster. You're an example. You're a model. You are a living, breathing example to both a, a non-believing world and your believing friends. And listen... I can live a life by faith. And I can go through sufferings 
And I can go through trials. And in the midst of those sufferings and trials, I can say, this is not in vain. I can trust that, hey, not only has God allowed this, but in many instances, listen, God has orchestrated your suffering. In many instances, God has carefully crafted that you would go through this. Listen, Ephesians 2.10 says this, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, you know, and it's this flowery thing, it's workmanship, it's poema, it's poem, it's work of art. And, you know, you, and truth, you know, the, the scripture text teaching, you know, I'm God's work of art. And, and so, you know, it's this great picture and you read, you know, that oh, God, I'm creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. And I'm thinking, man, puppy dogs and butterflies and rainbows and, you know, good works, right? It's all the... Do you know that some of the good works that God prepares for you are times of incredible crushing, times of incredible trial? Some of the good works that God prepares for you are good works that leave you saying, God, where are you? You've abandoned me. Why am I going through this? Why was I even born? Think about that. What was the greatest work in all of human history? It is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Being in a place where he himself would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet that is arguably the greatest work that will ever be done. Some of the best works that God does comes through suffering, comes through trial. And so God allows us to suffer hardship. He allows us to suffer, hard, uh, to, to suffer trials, to, to suffer crushing blows. And he does that in hopes that, hey, the unbelievers around us, the palace guard, as it were, would see how we respond to these things and that the believers around us would also respond to these things. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, Plans to give you a hope and a future. Guys, when we remember through our sufferings, through our trials, that God is in control, that he ordains our steps, that he ordains our sufferings for his purposes, well, then I can see my chains as they really are. This is an opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. And so the first perspective, if you are going through a time of trial, through a time of difficulty, through a time of hardship today, Man, it's just to keep in mind, God is in control. Here's a second perspective to keep in mind, and and if you're taking notes, you want to write it down. That God's purposes are bigger than man's motives. Not only, number one, is God in control, but number two, God's purposes are bigger than man's motives. Look at verse 15, as Paul continues. He says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then, he concludes verse 18, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. See, what Paul is saying is this. He's saying that not everyone works from honorable motives. 
Uh, even in the church, sometimes men work from, from dark and corruptive motivations, where it's not about the glory of God, it's not about honoring of Jesus. Uh, sometimes it's about rivalry, sometimes it's about jealousy, sometimes it's about selfish ambition. And here's what's going on in Paul's day. In Paul's day, evidently, there were men who were glad to see him go to jail. You know, Paul's books were publishing and and selling better than their books. And more people were coming to Paul than were coming to their thing. He was more popular. uh, He's getting more fan mail, all of this stuff. (laughs) And uh, and so there are people that that are glad to see Paul go to jail because they want to move in and make opportunity on his hardship. And so what happens is, here Paul is suffering, and he says, some of the fellow believers, they're emboldened righteously to follow his lead, but others are emboldened opportunistically. And they want to take advantage of the situation, and and they want to gain from his misfortune. And, And here's the application for us. See, a lot of times when we're suffering, our temptation is to react indignantly when others don't seem to be suffering like we're suffering or they don't seem to be sympathetic to the things that we're going through or they seem to, you know, be in some other ways prospering when we're going through such hardship and trial. See, the temptation is that what we will take our eyes off of the work that God wants to do in us and we're going to focus instead on the wrongs of other people and how maybe they've wronged us or, or whatever the case may be. And so you might be in a time of, of intense suffering and the temptation is in the midst of that to go, hey, well, what about them? Why am I going through this hurt? Why am I going through such suffering? And look at them. And they, why, God, I mean, that guy is doing this and, and that gal is doing that. And, and, and yet, you know, I'm the good kid and you're taking me through this and I'm going through all this trial. There's a great illustration of this. Turn to John chapter 21 real quick. John chapter 21. We're going to pick it up in verse 18. Um, basically, the story here is Jesus has come and he's, he's restoring Peter. Peter's denied him three times. Jesus has taken the steps to restore Peter. And having restored Peter, uh, Jesus now says this. He says in verse 18 of John chapter 21, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Peter, listen, you're going to face some, some severe trials and hardship. Peter, you're going to suffer for serving me. And you've got imprisonment in your future. You've got hardship in your future. They're going to lock you up. You don't get to go where you want to go. They're going to have you shackled and, and all. Peter, this is what's coming. This is, this is your lot. And, he, and verse 19 tells us, This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're restored. Go in with your eyes wide open. Here's the cost. The cost of following me is suffering. It's suffering, Peter. And I want you to understand that you are going to suffer more than most. You're going to be enchained, you're going to be imprisoned, and you're going to die serving me. Verse 20, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, 
following. And then he gives some description basically so that we know it's, it's John. Now, Peter and John, they had this ongoing rivalry, right? And so Peter, Jesus just tells him, hey, you're going to suffer and you're going to pay a heavy price. And so Peter's first reaction is to go, what about him? What's he going to pay? And so Jesus in verse 21, uh, well, Peter says in verse 21, hey, what about, what about this man? Jesus, verse 22, says to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And see, here's the point of application. See, God's purposes are bigger than man's motives. And you will be in a situation of trial, of circumstance, of suffering, and your temptation will be to to look around and to say, hey, I'm suffering, why aren't they? I'm going through hell right now, God. And that guy, he's eating bonbons, and he doesn't seem to care, and he's taken advantage of, or whatever. And God would say to you, that's none of your business. You belong to me. And see, guys, a mark of maturity is to understand that your walk is your walk. It's not my walk. It's not your wife's walk. It's not, well, it's kind of connected to your wife, but it's, it's your walk, right? And so the, the deal is, is that we want to compare. We want things to be equal. We want, hey, if I'm suffering, everybody's suffering, you know? No, God wants to take you through your walk, and it ain't fair. Life's not fair. Did your parents tell you that enough times? It ain't fair. God's not fair. He's going to treat you differently than he's going to treat other people because you're his work. You're his work of art. You're his poem. And you ain't like anybody else, and so you require different handling. And so if God chooses to crush you, that's his prerogative. See, as you go back to Philippians, what you see is that this, this instruction that God is giving to Peter, hey, that ain't none of your business. You follow me. This is exactly the instruction that, that Paul follows. I mean, he basically says in, in verse 18, that's the summary, hey, some of these guys, you know, have good motives. Some of them have not so good motives. What's Paul say? He says, what's, what's then? What's the point? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. See, Paul's attitude was this, and, and he, he shared this with the Galatians. It gives us a glimpse into his heart. He told the Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Hey, this life doesn't belong to me. I've been bought with a price. I belong to the Lord, and he can do with me as he wills. And guys, if we have that attitude, what will happen is that when God crushes you, when he takes you through that difficult persecution, and it is coming, but see, when God does that work, man, and you have the attitude that just says, well, you know what? He knows what he's doing. And he's seen seen fit to crush me. He's seen fit not to crush them. And I'm not going to take my eyes off of the work that God wants to do in me and through me and look at them. I'm going to say, Lord, this hurts, but I'm going to trust in you. I've been crucified in Christ. It's not a pleasant experience. And so 
when you're suffering, number one, man, you need to remember God's in control. When you're suffering, secondly, man, you got to remember God's purposes. They're bigger than man's motives. And thirdly, you have to keep this perspective when you're suffering. You can't kill a dead man. You can write that down. That's the third point. You can't kill a dead man. See, here's the thing. Here's what Paul says, verse 19. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, Look, I know God's in control. It's going to turn out. You're praying. The Holy Spirit's leading. Holy Spirit's working. I know it's going to turn out in accordance with God's will. He's in control. I know this. Verse 20, he says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, in my Bible, that second part of verse 20 there, I've got a box written around it. Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. That's a really healthy attitude to keep through life, my friends. Hey, Christ is going to be glorified. Whether I live or die, I live or die to the Lord. I belong to him. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but God who lives in me. And the life I live, man, I'm living right now for the glory of God. I'm just going to, I trust him. So it doesn't matter. And so Paul says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. They say to Paul, Paul, we're throwing you in prison. You're going you're to suffer in prison. He's like, hey, glory to live as Christ. Oh, wait, shoot. No, we're going to kill you. Hey, better to die as game. What can you do to a guy like that? I, I can't win. I, I'm going to throw you in prison. Great, living in Christ, awesome. Kill you, better, awesome, glory. How powerful for you in your life, how freeing in our life if we can live with that attitude that says, hey, to live is Christ, to die is gain, I belong to the Lord. Now, that's not to be Pollyanna-ish, you know, hey, you know, put on a smile, you live or die, and you're going to go through trials and hardship, and you know, no, it, it, it's hard, it hurts. But guys, that's the perspective that's going to carry us through that suffering. To say, man, you can't kill a dead man. I've been crucified in Christ. And so Paul continues, verse 22. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. It's like he's ordering a hamburger at In-N-Out. It's like, do I want a number one? Do I want a number two? It's just that casual. Do I live or die? I don't know. I'm hard-pressed. You know, I like living. I like being around for you. But hey, dying's cool too. Lord, I'm coming. You've had those days, right? Now would be a good day, Lord. I'm, I'm ready. You know, this is the day. Paul's like, hey, I, I just belong to him, whether I live, whether I die. Verse 24, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you, with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Listen, the attitude here, and we haven't got time to go there, but maybe in the margin next to that, you just want to write Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read you the first few verses of Colossians 3. Uh, it says this, If then, we'll throw it up on the screen for you, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which were above, 
where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? Now, what happens here, and it's a cool thing, is that, you know, Paul goes on, having said this, then he goes on to talk about all of these earthly things. And basically, what he says is, having put everything in perspective, then all of these other things that we get all bunched up about, hey, man, it doesn't matter. Because, man, you've been raised with Christ. You, you set your mind on things about You died, man. So you ought to be able to, to be able to work through all these sufferings and all these hardships and I've been wronged and all this because it's in the proper perspective, man. And that's what Paul is talking about. So what's the conclusion? Well, verse 27, he says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you... Uh, I'm sorry, uh, hear of your affairs... Uh, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you proof of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Paul says, let your conduct be worthy of Christ. I have a question for you. It's an honest question. How can you possibly obey that? How can you let your conduct be worthy of Jesus Christ? I'll tell you, there's only one thing you can do. Die. Die. Die to your sinful nature. Die to your flesh. That's the only thing that you can do to let your conduct be worthy of Christ. See, listen, here's what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel. Again, we'll put it on the screen. Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. That's the symbol of death and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so Paul says there in verse 28, I'm sorry, verse 29. He says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now that word suffer, it's very significant. Uh, you might want to circle it, and thereby write this. Write the word passion, because that's literally what that word means. And this is a picture, guys, of the passion of Christ. That's the picture of Jesus' suffering work on the cross to conquer sin and death. Paul says, you let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. For to you it's been granted, not only to believe, but to suffer for his name's sake. Just as Jesus was crucified, man, my sinful nature needs to be crucified. And as we close today partaking of communion, this is what we remember. And it's what we celebrate. And it's what everything we do is based upon. That God loves us so much that he sent his son in our place to die for our sin. And as we partake of this bread and we partake of this cup, it's symbolic of his body broken for us, of his blood shed for us. And as he was crushed, wounded, suffered for our sins by his stripes, we are healed. And God 
continues today to do that healing, cleansing, redemptive work through the crushing of his children. And if you're being crushed today, my question for you, if you're suffering today, it's, it's simply, how will you suffer? Will you suffer letting the Lord use your suffering for the redemptive work that he intended it for? Or are you going to go through that suffering, resisting and fighting against God? I'll close with this illustration and then we'll pray. Malcolm Muggeridge said this. You go, I don't care. Who's Malcolm Muggeridge and why should I care what he says? He's the English journalist who discovered Mother Teresa. He's the first guy that published her story. He, he died back in the 90s. And nearing his death, this is what he wrote in reflecting on his own life. He said, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful. But with the benefit of hindsight, I remember them with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. The crushing, it ain't pleasant. But what comes out the other side is amazing. 